Good job, guys. That's a good song. Well, I see the sunglasses are still here. Do you, you think those are ladies? Are those ladies? Maybe they're men's. Are they, do they look good on a guy? No. I don't, I'm just asking. I, I guess. Bruce Jenner can pick him up afterwards on his way out, I guess. <laughs> now, last week, <coughs> we had a study on, on the word bag. Who would ever think that that one little word would be so powerful in the Bible? And it was based on Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11. By a wild coincidence, just based much like your Bible, 1611. And we looked at how in this life and through life, we pick up things. We pick up good things and we pick up bad things. We pick up good habits, we pick up bad habits. We pick up bad people in our life, we pick up good people in our life. We pick up things. And we looked at how God uses the concept to illustrate this great truth of a bag, that as we go through life, we put stuff in this bag that we carry. The good things that we pick up, they, they help us. They form a, a good balance for us. The bad things, they weigh us down. They form a bad balance. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 talks about this where it says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. There it is. Every weight. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The weight in our bags. We, I told you last week, we use the term all the time. Well, I like this guy, I like this gal, but oh, I got a lot of baggage. What's in your bag this morning? It's what we talked about last week. Then I took you and showed you another aspect of it based on the principles found in the Old Testament book of Haggai. A bag with holes. Illustrated by the nation of Israel who forsook the building of God's temple. God brought them back in Ezra and Nehemiah after a 70 years captivity. He brought them back to the land and gave them the commission to begin to rebuild the temple. And they started building that temple. And you remember, I liken it like so many of God's people that began to do something for God and then they stopped. And when Haggai comes on the scene, they have been dormant now for 16 years and have ceased to build the temple of God. And I, I showed you how that as you come down through those verses, Haggai said, you know what? Nothing now satisfies you. You drink all you want. You're not satisfied. You get all you want to eat. You're still not satisfied. You have all these great possessions, but yet you're still not satisfied. And he comes down and he makes the great concept, your life is like a bag with holes. Everything you put in, you've lost. And now your life is empty. And it's a picture of our lives today without God and the things of God and how empty it really, really, really becomes. Now today, moving along here, we want to look at Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verses 12 through 15. Let's read it here. And it says, It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him that speaketh right. 
The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, but a wise man will pacify it. In the light of the king's countenance is life, and his favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. Josh, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on our preaching this morning? <coughs> Oh, Josh made a great play in softball last night. I was watching that ball just fall, and he came out of nowhere. <laughs> I was impressed, son. When you get on Medicaid and Medicare, you really fire you up to play some ball. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. I love you, buddy. Now, this passage and passages like this are fun for me. I enjoy them. You know, some people in life... <clears throat> They like to do crossword puzzles. I think crossword puzzles are, are a great thing. I think it, it uses your mind and it makes you think and it's a great to learn words. I think they're a great thing. And a lot of people, you see them sitting, you know, doing a crossword puzzle. All the newspapers have them in. You can go buy books and they come in different, different hardnesses, you know, easy, medium, and really hard, you know, just like taco sauce, you know, mild, medium, and really hot. But anyway, uh, but uh, a lot of people do those. My mom was a, was a thousand-piece picture puzzle putter together. She loved to put them together. We would go over to, over to uh, Waldo's Pizza. If you, when you go in the men's room to use their bathroom, you'll notice that somebody put all of these, all the pictures in there are made up of thousand-piece picture puzzles. And then they, you glue them over or gloss them over, and they stay together, and it, the whole place is filled with it. And uh, so people like to do things like that. I, the craze today for young guys, and I, I envy you guys. I go over to Danny and Jamie's, and you get some game on the video thing down here, and, you know, I can't do it. I mean, I keep bumping. You guys run through things with these, just your fingers doing those things, man. I can't do that. But to me, nothing is more fun and exciting than getting along with your Bible and unlocking what I consider are puzzle passages. And this is a puzzle passage. You would read this, you know, what I just read, and most people would read that and say, okay, move on to the next. What, really, what's here? This is a puzzle passage. This is, for me, it's these kind of passages that are just incredible to unlock. Much like doing a crossword puzzle. Much like doing your video games. Much like putting a, a, a thousand-piece picture puzzle. And you know, in every one of those things that you, are, you do, there's a secret to it. I, I look at the picture puzzles, a thousand pieces. Man, well, what do you do? How, do you, how would you ever get that? And every night on New Year's Eve, my mom used to start around 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening. And by 1 o'clock in the morning, we stay up all night, watch Guy Lombardo, you know, watch the big thing come down and blow up in New York. And uh, it, it was always a fun time. And I would wake up every morning on New Year's morning, and my mom would have that puzzle together. And I asked her one time, I said, Mom, I said, How do, what is the secret to that? And she said, well, what you do is you dump all the pieces out and you get the corner pieces. And you separate them and you start putting the framework together. And then once you get the framework together, then you start working from the framework in. And as the picture develops, the pieces make more sense. You know, years later when I got saved, I thought to myself, that's exactly the way you work with the Bible. This when we do your discipleship one, discipleship two, what I do on Thursday night, what I do in the people ministry, what I do and I'll teaching you the Bible. I'm giving you framework things. 
I'm framing the Bible for you. I'm putting it into context for you. So down the line, as you put the picture puzzle of the Word of God together, because God's Bible manifests a picture that God wants you to see, it becomes easy. There's a secret to crossword puzzles. I don't know what it is, but there's a secret to it. (laughs) Now, in these verses, we see instructions given to a king. Now, when I saw that years ago, that intrigued me. And, I, and, I, and there's some really good stuff here. And I, I always start with the historical because that's easy to establish, the framework, and then it, it's easy to move in from there. So from a historical perspective, the book of Proverbs was written by the wisest king that Israel ever had, Solomon. We know that. God through Solomon intended Proverbs to be good instructions for all the kings that were going to follow. His own son, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and all the Boam boys, they, 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 they were the next set of kings after the kingdom got split. And Solomon, without a, without, a, without a doubt, is the most unique man in all of the Bible, I think, from my own personal study of him. Uh, he, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses, the whole chapter, 1 through 66, which again just happens to be the chapters in the Bible, he goes through his great prayer of dedication before he builds the temple. It is absolutely one of the greatest, incredible prayers in all of the Bible. And you know what? One of the things to study in the Bible is prayers in the Bible. When we start July, when we start getting ready for camp, you know the first message I'm going to preach to you parents? The prayer you should have for your children. Prayed by the greatest parent in the Bible. Now, I know that's Fourth of July weekend you're going to have to cancel your plans to stay here to hear that. You don't want to miss that. But there's some great prayers in the Bible. I think David's prayer, restitution with God, is an incredible prayer. And all through the Bible, there's some men and some women who just illustrate in their prayer. And and Solomon, when he prays, there's four great petitions in his prayer. And his prayer, his prayer is to ask God for the people of God not for riches, not for honor and glory, not for possessions, but his prayer is about God. These are your people, and I know who you are, and I know what you want to accomplish. As their king, dear God, give me the wisdom and the understanding and the discernment to be a good king to such great people. That's some powerful prayer. And And I believe that through the writing of the books of Solomon, Proverbs in particular. I believe that God intended Proverbs to be the, the litmus test, to be the, the book that all the other kings could look to to get the instructions from God to take care of his people. When he comes down to the end of his prayer, and by the way, when he starts out praying his prayer, he's standing. When he finishes the prayer, he's fell to his knees. Incredible prayer. Incredible prayer. And at the end, he says in verse 59 and 60, 61, he says, And let these my words wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is none else. 
Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God and walk in his statutes to keep his commandments as at this day. Wow, that's incredible. That is absolutely credible. And in one book, Proverbs, as I start to see that and I began to work my way through it, I began to see that in the book of Proverbs, he makes 12 direct references to kings and how they should rule based on the wisdom that he, he has for them. It's just incredible stuff, incredible stuff. Now, in your Bible, you know that we have what we call the five wisdom books. You know that. And yet, when I looked at those five wisdom books, they, they give us a complete balance of God. We talk about balance all the time, how important balance is. And as a Christian, you need to have a balance with God. God is a very balanced being, and you need to have a balance in your relationship with Him. And the five wisdom books of the Bible will provide you that balance at some point in your life. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. It depends on where you're at and where your growth process is. But at some point in your life, you need to get these five books down to support that balance. You got Psalms. You know what Psalms is? Psalms is nothing more than the heart of God. You got Job. You know what Job is? Job is nothing more than the sufferings of God. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. In, 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 in the book of Ecclesiastes, now we begin to get into the mindset of God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you find the mind of the Spirit. In the book of Song of Solomon, you find the mind of Christ. And yes, in the book of Proverbs, where we're at today and have been for quite a while now, you find the mind of God. I've always looked at Proverbs as the book God gave Israel so that the leadership could lead them by God's mind the right way. And along with that, I've always looked at that as the book of God that he gave us, you and me as leaders. If you're a leader in this church and, and, and you're somebody who has responsibility, then the book of Proverbs, I've always looked at it as the book that God gave us, you and me, as leaders to lead the people of God with his mind through the New Testament. In Israel's history, their first teen kings were, 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 were great studies. When Israel begins to come out of the book of Judges and comes into the book of Samuel, you'll find that the first king that Israel gets wasn't God's choice. It was Saul. Saul was the people's choice. Saul was never one of the men that God wanted them to have. And of course, Saul, his life speaks for itself. But when God began to get his kings in, the first two kings that, that Israel has that are God's men is David and then Solomon. And their two lives are incredible. Here again, now you begin to see the consistency of that book of how it always lays itself out. Where David reigns for 40 years, David is not allowed to build the temple. You know why? Because David is a warrior. David wipes out the last of the nations that are in the land that belong to the nation of Israel. And because he's the warrior king, because he's the man who smites the rest of the nations and wipes them out, he's not permitted to build the temple because he's a type of Christ. 
at the second coming of Christ and the nations that he wipes out is a picture of the Antichrist being wiped out. But the next king, Solomon, comes on the throne. Solomon builds the temple. Solomon reigns for 40 years. But during Solomon's 40 reigns, there's no wars. David is a type of Christ at the second coming, wiped out all the adversaries. Now Solomon shows up, a type of Christ, in the millennium. And he builds the temple. And that temple is found in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, which is going to be built in the millennium. They're tremendous studies. Tremendous studies. And these two men are the greatest leaders that Israel ever had. And when Solomon writes, when Solomon comes to the throne, he gives Israel and us, the church, a book called Proverbs that will give us exactly God's thoughts on everything in life. It starts with Solomon, and then it goes down through the next 38 different kings. 19 kings with Judah, the southern tribes, 19 kings with Israel, the northern tribes, 38 kings over the next four or 500 years have access to the knowledge and the wisdom and the instructions that God gave Solomon to be for kings. Most of them forsook them. Now, in Proverbs, he makes 12 references dealing with kings and how they are to rule over the people of God. And these are really good. Let's look at them briefly here for a moment. First of all, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 35, he says that a king should pick the advisors around him that are going to give him good counsel. He says a king should have men around him who give him wise counsel and the decisions that he has to make. The second thing in Proverbs 16, 10, he addresses the kings again. And he tells them to always use the word of God for the basis of their judgments and their decrees. In Proverbs 16, 12, again, he tells the kings to set the example of right for the rest of the kingdom or the country. In Proverbs 20, verse 8, he says, now you watch out for the safety of your people. And you keep those out that would hurt them. In Proverbs 20, verse 26, he says, You swiftly punish those that would subvert the kingdom and to hurt others. In Proverbs 20, 28, he says, The king is to have a reign balanced with mercy and truth. In Proverbs 21, 1, he says, A king is to keep his heart close and right with God, who is the ultimate model of our kingship. In Proverbs 22, 11, he says, a king is to keep people around you who love God and love the things of God. There's your association. In Proverbs 29, verse 4, he says, always follow the word of God and not to make deals. Don't compromise. Don't make deals and compromise the principles of God to further your kingdom. He says, you know what? What God establishes, God will sustain. He says in Proverbs 31, verses 3 through 5, that a wise and uh, wine and strong drink will pervert 
a judgment of a king. He says wine and strong drink are not for kids. There's no Bible in a beer in the concept of God's, of, of God's program. He says it impairs your judgment. Hey, you know what? Most of the problems that you and I have gotten into that had a long range effects were things, decisions that we made when our judgment was impaired. I promise you. And lastly, he says in Proverbs 25, 2, a king needs to have the ability to discern in matters of judgment. I teach our people in the people ministry. When dealing with people, we base and build most of what we do on the teachings of Solomon. The first principle I gave them is what I call the Solomon Principle. The Solomon Principle, without a doubt, is the absolute greatest single principle to understand and have in your arsenal when you deal with people. It goes back to 1 Kings chapter 3, way back uh, at the beginning of, of Solomon. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. And you know the story. It's a story that he's sitting on the throne, and they bring two harlots into him. And he's sitting on the throne as a king, making his judgments, discerning this, discerning that, giving his decrees, and whatever he says goes. So these two harlots come in, and they have a baby. And they come up before him, and he says, what's the deal here? And he said, and the way one lady speaks up, and he says, you know what? We both had children. And in the middle of the night, she rolled over on her baby and it died. And then while I was sleeping, she took my baby and says it's her baby. And I, I, I don't have a baby. You're, you're, King, that's my baby. The other woman said, oh, that's not true. See, this is where Judge Judy always comes from. No, no, Your Honor, that wasn't true. No, 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 no. It's just the other way. She rolled over on her baby. While I was asleep, she took my baby. Now, Solomon has to make a decree. Now, here's the problem he faces. One, they're both hookers. They don't have the best character traits in life. They're both sinners. Two, he doesn't know either one of them. Three, he doesn't know who's lying. All he knows is he's got a story that both claim to be true. And I remember reading this the first time years ago, and I thought this was the dumbest thing in the planet. Because you know what Solomon's answer is? Solomon says, okay, I don't know you, and I don't know you. I don't know who's lying here. Somebody's obviously lying here. Gee, what do I do in a situation like this? Oh, I know. Hey, bring a guard in here with a sword. What are you going to do? Cut that baby in half, give her half, her half, and be on your way and be happy. The moment he said that, the mother, who it was really the baby's mother, because it was her baby, was motivated that she would rather allow her child to be raised by another woman and it was lying than to see that baby die. The other woman, who it wasn't, said, yeah, cut it in half. That's good. Immediately, he knew who the mother of the baby was. 
Now, I saw that early in life, and I thought to myself, hmm, that could have went south. <clears throat> I hope in my situations in dealing with people, I'm never faced with that. Though there's been times in dealing with Mary, I would like to have shot them both. <clears throat> but that, 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 that doesn't work either. <clears throat> but then I saw it. I saw the greatest principle taught in Proverbs for dealing with people. You know what? When people come into me, and it's a he said, she said, when I don't know them, even if I do know them, I don't know who's really telling me the truth. You know there's always two sides to every story. And you know as well as I do when I tell you my side of the story, I'm going to tell it for my benefit, not yours. That's just human nature. And so Solomon's faced with a, a traumatic problem here. He doesn't know who's telling the truth. And many times when you're dealing with people and she tells you one thing and he tells you something else, you don't know the truth, but you've got to have an answer to the problem. You know what you do? You do the same thing Solomon did. Solomon put him under a sword. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, that sword is a sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God. And when you have two people coming in and you don't know who's telling you the truth, you just simply say, okay, folks, let's just come to church. I'm going to put you under the Word of God and you under the Word of God. You do this as the husband. You do this as the wife. And you know what? You'll find out very quickly where the problem is. The sword will always produce the truth. It did with Solomon and the sword of the Word of God in any given situation when you get under the authority of the Word of God will always show where the real problem is. That's Proverbs. And the Bible says when he did that, all of Israel wondered at the wisdom of Solomon. He's the wisest man that ever lived. And he wrote to the kings of Israel 12 direct concepts. And I want to tell you, those 12 things are great advice for any leader in any dispensation who has responsibility over the people of God. And if you can't see that structure in this church, you're blind, man. Now, in an inspirational application, we have a great practical principle here in these two verses. You and me as a king. Someday we're going to reign with Jesus Christ as a king, hopefully. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That you and I, part of the body of Christ, someday, if we do what we're supposed to do with the Word of God, and we all know what that is, that someday we're going to reign with Him. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, that some people will get denied that reign. Some people will deny God what he saved them for down here. And when you deny yourself the suffering for Christ in this life, that he will deny you the reign in the next life. Just that simple. Just that simple. And it's so clear that even though I am not, technically speaking, a king yet, and you and I haven't received our kingship yet, we should live the life of a good life of a righteous king. You know, the great model of that found in the Bible is David. David is one of the greatest studies for my life that I've ever taken in the Word of God. And there's so many books on David that are great books. I think one of the greatest books that you could ever open up and read, it's an incredible book, and it's just really good, is by A.W. Pink, simply The Life of David. It's incredible, incredible. And one of the aspects of his life I, I, that I found, I, I never read about. I, I never found it in a book. I don't know if anybody didn't see it. I don't know if anybody didn't get it. 
But it's the great concept of David's progression from being a shepherd boy to becoming a king. And do you know that's the model and pattern for your life and my life? David started out as just a shepherd, taking care of the flock of God, taking care of the sheep. And he grew into a man after God's own heart, and God brought him to be a king. But the success, his success with God and the success that he got through the trials of his life, and boy, he went through some trials, just like you and I will. And as a young man growing up, as a young shepherd boy, he talks about the fact that he was watching his sheep and a lion and a bear came to take those sheep and he, 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 he killed them. And then a little bit later on when Goliath comes out to defy the God of Israel, that little guy takes on Goliath. There's a progression in his life. The victory over the bear and the lion prepared him for the battle with Goliath. And the battle with Goliath prepared him to be the king of Israel. And right now, you and me are to be a shepherd boy. We tend the flock. We take care of the sheep. Right now in this life, your job and my job is to take care of the person sitting next to you, the person behind you, the person in front of you, your family, the people you disciple, the people I pastor. That's our job right now, but someday through a natural process of fighting the battles of life, bless God, we're going to be a king. From shepherd boy to king through the life of David. That's an incredible concept for me. And what a great verse these two verses are, 12 and 13. Not only doctrinally, but from a practical application. It says... For it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings. And they that love him, that, and they, they love him that speaketh right. You know what I've learned over the years in the ministry? And this is so true. Good people will always love the truth. You ever notice that? Some of you come here and you hear the truth preached. You may not appreciate it, but you know what's good for you. And you're like the Bible says again in Proverbs that the, he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. So you take it and because you love truth. And not only do you take it because you love truth, you take it because you're a good person because a good person will always love truth. Now you'll have the same person come in here and they're out of fellowship with God. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want any part of God. And I get that. I understand where they're at. And I, I love them. I'm no problem at all. But I'm trying to make the illustration here. They're not going to appreciate truth. You know, there's people that leave, not just this church, but any church. Any church that preaches the Bible. You know, there's people that leave those churches and go out there someplace and they complain about this or that. And so many times I've seen their parents justify it. Well, you know, so-and-so said something to my boy and so-and-so said something to my girl and so-and-so said something, now they won't come to church anymore. That's not the problem. The problem is they don't like truth. And when they're faced with the truth, it's easier just to leave and blame it on somebody else and just, hey, I got $10 in my pocket. I'm going to give, I always carry my wallet. I'm going to give it to the first person I deal with that says, Bob, I'm not coming back to church and I'm not coming this and I'm not doing that simply because 
I don't like truth. I don't care for truth. You preach the truth. I don't want to hear it, and I'm not coming back. I'm going to say, just a minute. Here, this is for you. I found an honest man. <laughs> truth of the matter is, it's truth. Good people will always love the truth. Good people will always love people who speak the truth. Because you know it's truth. Most kids don't appreciate their parents until they get older in life. You know why that is? I know it's true in my life, and it's true probably in many of your lives, you adults, and probably in some of your kids. Don't, your kids are a little different than we grew up because of what they have here. But you know what? You know why? You know why we had such a problem with our parents till we got a little bit older in life? Because we didn't think they were telling us the truth. You know why you appreciate your parents later on in life and when they die you miss them so bad and you want to spend time with them as they get older? Because deep down inside you realize that they, you should love them because they told you the truth. You didn't want to hear it. See, I grew up in a generation that had T-shirts, billboards, and everything that went around and said, tell it like it is, tell it like it is, man, tell it like it is. Well, when I used to get in the pulpit and tell it like it was, nobody wanted to hear it. You want to hear it like it is. You want to hear it as you want to hear it. Do you love truth? Yes. I'm telling you, man, truth is the best friend you got. I'll tell you the second best friend you got, somebody who tells you the truth. You know, that's some great advice for any head of state in any government back then and today. That's great advice for any Christian who wants to someday reign as a king with Christ. That's great advice for any pastor that has responsibility for people. Now look at verse 14. It says, The wrath of a king is as messages of death, but a wise man will pacify it. Now in a historical context, we're dealing with the awesome power of a king. His sovereign rule. And sovereign means absolute. And through history and the Bible, it's been filled with him. You have Pharaoh, who was king of Egypt. You had Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. You had Shennacherib, who was the king of Assyria. You had Cyrus, and then a little later on, Darius, who were the kings of Persia. You had Alexander the Great, who was the king of Greece. And of course, when the Roman Empire came into being, you had the Caesars. They had absolute power and control over life and death and everything in their kingdom. One word from the king and you're dead. Catch him on a bad day, you're in trouble. Catch him on a good day, you might be okay. A great example of that is the book of Daniel. In fact, in Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar, boy, he's throwing him in the lion's den, throwing him in the fiery furnace. He's killing anybody he wants to kill. At his whim, literally. You get into our modern-day history, the history of Europe, the history of England, you see the same thing. Henry VIII had, I don't know how many wives he had. He killed most of them. He was the king of England. And he wanted a, he wanted a boy to be on the throne. He married Anne Boylan, and Anne Boylan, he dumped Catherine of Spain for Anne, wanted to have an heir. She got pregnant, gave him a girl. You know what he did? He had her killed. Just like that. The Tower of London, I told you a couple of weeks ago, reading a story in the Tower, studying the Tower of London, incredible. Started out as the palace for William the Conqueror, wound up becoming the greatest prison and execution site on planet Earth for the kings. Anybody they didn't like, 
went to the tower. Executions were just a run of the day. Incredible. Incredible. You think about Queen Mary, called Bloody Mary. How many millions and thousands of Christians were butchered for her? It's incredible. Now, the verse is showing what it needs in a king's life, the importance of a good balance. Though you may have sovereign rule and power and absolute say, you need to temper that in your decisions with a balance. A good king will have a group of people around him advising him and advise him to look at all aspects of the situation before you make a judgment. They had a law in Persia called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. You know what the Law of the Medes and Persians was? It meant once they passed a law, it could never be taken off the books. You could never revoke a law. It was an absolute law. And there was a lot of things that were done and put into play that caused a lot of problems down the line someplace because they couldn't retract it. A good example of this is in 1 Kings chapter 5 with Nahum, who is an army captain who is a leper. And he's told to go down and wash in Jordan seven times and it'll be clean. And when he found out that the man of God was coming to make him clean, he was looking for some great religious experience. When he found out he had to go down in the dirty old river of Jordan and dip himself seven times, he's in a rage. It was a little maid, who we don't even know her name, came to him and said, Your, your Majesty, it, now if, if the prophet of God would have asked you to do some great things, would you not have done it? Well, absolutely. Well, then... Why not just do the little thing and be clean? Your Majesty, it isn't about what he asked you to do, sire. It's about do you want to get clean? There's a little girl. We don't even know her name. You know what she did? She balanced out the king of Syria. She balanced it out. She took his wrath and put it in a a bag and put it on a UPS truck, sent it someplace else. Now, in a practical sense, for you and for me, for me particularly as a pastor, through the Word of God, I know the pastor of any church, he has the final authority, he has the final say, he has to make the final call. That's the way the Bible sets it up. But he would be a fool to think of himself like a king than lord over people. In fact, the Bible, now, many do. But the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, talking to a pastor, it says, neither being lords over God's heritage, but being example to the flock. God says, instead of you just lording over everybody, and many do. I've known pastors down through my time in the ministry that, that, that examined every tape you ever listened to, that you didn't listen to anybody that knew the Bible better than them. I knew pastors that controlled every aspect of your life, wouldn't allow you to think for yourself. My job here is not to keep you from thinking for yourself. My job here is just to get you to think. And a, and, a, and a pastor's an absolute fool if he doesn't utilize the people that God gives him. Hey, in this church, there are some of the sharpest minds on planet Earth. And you're not going to use them? You're not going to find out their viewpoint on something? If he's smart, most are not, he will realize that he may, he may have the final say, but you have to put men and women around you that look at the same thing you see and see what you don't see. You know that's true in a marriage? 
Sometimes husbands run their wives just like most pastors run their church. They never realize that the wife that they have, if she's saved and she's a good woman, that she has absolute invaluable intel into any decision you have to make. And you, just because of your arrogantly prideful mindset, void of that is going to cause all kinds of problems in your life. God gave her for, to you for a reason. She'll see things from a different perspective that you won't see. She'll have a different take on something that you do. When you want to come in and shoot everybody to the ground and kill everybody or do this or do that or do that, it'll be her like that little maid with the king of Assyria, the captain, Nahum, that brings it all into balance. To a pastor, as Solomon to the kings of Israel, I say this, don't get so full of yourself that you think you don't need others to advise you. You do. We have the power of what we say as Christians to build up somebody or destroy somebody. Through gossip, slander, discord, deceitfulness, the sins of the saints, so to speak. Listen, down through history, there's been a lot of secret messages and a lot of secret meetings that got a lot of people killed. And down through Christianity of the church, it's the same way. Secrets behind your back. Deceptions. Have gotten a lot of people killed spiritually. You know how you spot a deception? The definitive verses in the Bible on deception will be in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 27. Those are the two places you go to understand what a deception is. But here's rule number one on deception. The reason why somebody will go behind your back to get something done without coming to you face to face. Now listen, this is very important. The reason why some people will go behind your back to do what they do and won't come to you face to face because they know if they come to you face to face, the facts of what they're doing will not be supported by that book. You better write that one down. That is exactly the way it works. That's rule number one of a deception. People will do things behind our backs because they know face to face what they're doing will never stand the test of this book. We as Christians have been given the custodianship of the most powerful words in the universe, the Bible. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and they stood still. You and I have been given custodianship of those words. And with them, we can either use them to send a message to destroy somebody, or we can be wise and pacify our wrath with the grace and truth of that book that God gives us and send a message of mercy to help somebody. Look at verse 15. In the light of the king's countenance is life. And his favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. Now, <clears throat> there's some things if you don't have down here, you need to get these down. From a doctrinal standpoint, this verse, as mostly all of Proverbs, is dealing with the second coming of Christ as we will see as you go through the book of Proverbs as we're going through it. The light of the king's countenance. There's some phrases here I want you to get down. The light of the king's countenance. 
wherever you find it in the Bible, will always be a reference to the second coming of Christ. When you go to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, which is commonly called a Mount of Transfiguration, there Jesus Christ in a human man goes beyond the cross and gets transfigured as he will be uh, at the second coming of Christ with the glory of God. And the Bible says he shines white as the light. You'll find it again in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. You'll find it again in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, context of second coming of Christ. My goodness, he's called the Son, S-U-N, not S-O-N, the Son, S-U-N of righteousness. And wherever you find it, he's lightened to a white light. You know why it's white? Because it's pure light. It's pure light. And the light referred to here in verse 15 is the light of salvation of the earth at the second coming of Christ. That light is impacted and that countenance has impacted so many people in history that even to this day, once England was a great nation that believed the Bible and held the Bible and preached the Bible, we got our King James 1611 from that country where God used that nation, not only to get it to us, but to get it around the world. You know, to this day in British Parliament and British courts, they wear white wigs. You know why they wear white wigs? It goes back two, three hundred years that they realized that the people in government, the judges and the people in parliament had to give righteous judgment so they wore a white wig to represent the white light of hair-like wool of Jesus Christ at the second coming of Christ so they'd always remember to make their judgment based on a book. You think anybody in England knows that today? That book's incredible. Look at the next part. Favor as is as a cloud. Now, a cloud in the Bible is a great word study. Always will be key uh, to the context of any passage. The definitive passage, now I've given you two definitive passages here as we go through this. These are very important to get these down. The definitive passage on a cloud will be Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is where Christ ascends up. And he's you're told there that when he, he goes up in a cloud, and he's going to come back in a cloud. So every time you find a cloud in the Bible, it's going to pretty much set the context at the second coming of Christ. You'll find it in Mark 14, 62, Revelation 1, 7, Joel chapter 2, verse 2, Zephaniah 1, 5, and Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. All the way through the Bible. So now we've got a cloud. Now look at the last part of the verse. The latter rain formerly known as the former and the latter reign in the Bible. Now, the definitive chapter on this will be James chapter 5. He explains it in great detail. You always want, always want, also want to see Joel chapter 2, verse 23. Job chapter 37, verse 6. 2 Chronicles 6, 26. 2 Chronicles 7, 12. Psalm 68, 8, and 9. Revelation 11, 6. 2 Samuel 23, 4. Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 14, 22. Isaiah 5, 6. You say you're going too fast. Yeah, buy the tape. And by the way, I forgot to tell you, one day only, they're $100 a piece today. <laughs> It'll always represent the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, doctrinally. In Revelation chapter 11, Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses, show up. They do in the tribulation what they did back in the Old Testament. Moses turns the waters to blood. You find it in Revelation. Calls down the fire from heaven. You find it in Revelation. Elijah, on the other hand, back in the Old Testament, 
back around there in uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. He turns the place where it doesn't rain for three and a half years. He's up against King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, type of the Antichrist and his religion, Babylon, Mr. Religion. And so he shuts down heaven that it doesn't rain back in 1 Kings 10 for three and a half years. So when he comes into the tribulation period, in the last half, when he's up against the Antichrist and the whorish woman, he shuts it up again. And the last three and a half years of the tribulation period is called the former and the latter rain. It rains for the last time, former rain, and then for three and a half years it doesn't rain at all. And then at the latter rain, at the end of that three and a half years, it ushers in the second coming of Christ. Former and latter rain. All explained in the definitive passage of James chapter 5. So when you find the latter rain or rain in the Bible, you always want to pay attention. Context most generally is going to be the end of the tribulation period. You see, the tribulation and the second coming is like a rainstorm. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, 10 and 11. And what it is there, it says, you got the thunder and the lightning. I saw Satan fall from heaven as lightning. The Lord comes back. You got the thunder, the clouds, the rain, and all that stuff. And then at the end of that great storm, you find a rainbow in the sky. Only two times you find a rainbow in the sky. One's after Noah's flood, which is a type of the second coming of Christ. The other one after the second. Oh, I'm getting too much Bible. I can see on your face. I'm losing you. I'll just stick with the text here. Isaiah 55 says that at the end, when that rain comes down, the millennium comes in, it's just like a beautiful rainstorm. All the grass is greener, the air is clear, it's purged out everything except the water at the second coming is the Word of God. Now, you want to get that in your Bible. I just saved you, whether you know it or not, I just saved you two years. You can thank me later. Now, in a practical application... This countenance here, this light of his countenance, is the light of God that shines in our hearts at the time of our salvation. Second Corinthians chapter, this is the practical application now. I gave you the doctrinal, here's the practical. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. There it is. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who command here it comes, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There it is. There's the countenance of His light in your heart. Jesus Christ. Coming into my heart at the time of my salvation. Now, the great example of this is in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Paul when he's going down the road there and he gets confronted with the Lord. And the Bible says a great light shone about him. That's the picture. That's the light that, uh, of the countenance of Christ in my heart. And when I have it in my heart, it'll do two things. And you want to get these down. When you get illuminated by the gospel light of Christ, when he illuminates your heart into your life by his countenance, it will do two fundamental things in your life. First of all, it will illuminate all the things in our lives that we've been hiding. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, and the joints of the marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him which we have to do. You know what that book does when the God gets into your heart and that light shines into your life? The lights come on. He discerns my thoughts and the intents of my heart. The lights come on. And he manifests the things in our lives. Now this is why people get saved and start to get into the Bible and then quit coming to church. It's like going into your kitchen in the middle of the night and turning on the lights and watching all the bugs scatter for the dark. Your life and my life was filled with cockroaches before we got saved. They were feasting on everything. And you know how hard cockroaches are to kill? They're armor-plated. A science study said one time that if the world was nuked completely and everybody was dead, the only thing that would survive would be cockroaches. And when you go in there and you turn the light on, brother, the bugs scatter. And when you get the light of the countenance of God enters into your heart, the lights come on. Oh, the bugs want to scatter. When I got saved, there were some things that I had to change. See, I feel sorry for you guys. I really do. And I know I'm preaching up here and raising my voice, but, you know, I'm just doing that to stay awake. I was up late last night, so I'm just doing that for my benefit, not yours. <laughs> but you know the difference between the Christianity I grew up in 50 years ago and the one that you all have to hold your nose to go through today is? You know what the difference is? It's the fact that Christians today get saved and they think they don't have anything to change. You realize when you got saved, God separated you from the world? In the Bible, it's the word sanctified. That means he separated you from the world. When you got saved, you got sanctified. You got set aside. And we've got a Christianity today that doesn't understand anything about sanctification. And they want to be a Christian, but they want to do all the things the world does. The lines are blurred today, and their parents justify it. I've had parents that their kids did this and did that, and, oh, it's my little guy, it's my little girl, don't you pick on them. No, it isn't about them. It's about there's a hard line of sanctification for a child of God. You're no longer in this world. Why are you living like one? Why do you drink the things of the world? Why do you smoke the things of the world? Why do you talk like the world? You're supposed to be different. That's the Christianity I grew up in. That's why I don't preach like I just did right there. That was a long time ago. Can't do that now. You all get mad. He's picking on my little boy. Somebody needs to because you didn't. Somebody's picking on my little boy. Somebody needs to because you sure didn't. Had a lady one time, she was going on and on and on about her kids and how they were hanging out with the wrong crowd and hanging out with this and hanging out with that, hanging out with this. And I got so sick of it, I just asked her, I said, ma'am, let me ask you a question. Who taught them their value system? Who taught them their value system? Right. 
Christianity today, they get saved and they think there's nothing they have to change. When you got saved, you got sanctified. You got set apart. Hey, there's, in this sense, there's three aspects to the Christian life. You're saved. You're sanctified. And then you serve. And there's no serving God without being sanctified by God. Now, the second thing about the light of his countenance is now I have the ability to see my journey through life illuminated by his word. Psalms 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. Psalms 119, 130, the end of thy word giveth light. This world is in darkness. This, 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 our life is in darkness in this world. And a devil has laid a thousand obstacles in my path in the darkness to make me stumble and fall. You know, in Vietnam, you were more worried about the booby traps than you were the enemy you were up against. And they were masters at it. Hey, there is a nothing in this world that is more divisive and more cunning and more fear, fearless in fighting than Shem the Oriental. Why, back in the Custer's day and back in the, in the, in the earlier times when there'd be a 500,000 uh, cavalry troops out there and they were fighting the Indians, an Indian warrior would ride right up about 50 yards from them in defiance and he'd take a spear and throw it in the ground and run back. During World War II, they'd line up in a banzai charge, 5,000 of them, and they'd just keep coming in waves and in waves and in waves. They were stacked like cordwood when the battle was over. Nothing like the mind of Shem in war. You want to pick a battle, you better pick something with Japheth because Shem will eat your lunch. And in Vietnam, they were incredible masters of, of deception and booby-trapping things. They made Al-Qaeda and ISIS look like amateurs. They'd take bamboo stakes, and it didn't cost them a dime. They cut bamboo stakes, and bamboo, when you cut it at an angle, is razor sharp. And they'd dig a hole in a trail, and they'd put eight or nine or 12 of them down in there just under the surface, and they'd cover it up that you couldn't see it. And when a patrol went down, you stepped on a punji stake, and it would go through any combat boot that you wore. Sometimes they put a bottom on it and two sides, and when you stepped on it, not only did you get them up through your foot, but they clamped on both sides and put punji stakes through both sides of your legs. And they dipped them in urine and, and, and human urine and, and all the other uh, waste material so you'd get instant infection. They were masters at it. They're the ones that invented the little cluster bomb called the Bouncing Betty. That you'd walk down a trail and hit a tripwire, and that little bomb would come up waist high right in front of you and explode. I don't have to tell you how tough that was on you. Blew, half your, half, blew you in half. Incredible. They'd booby-trap trails with, with large punzai sticks, and they'd pull them back. When you would step into it, it would swing out and impale you, or come up and impale you, and you would be standing there impaled in that trail. Americans were so afraid of the booby traps that they would go down the trail, and they'd be empty, and they thought it was good, and the VC learned it, let them go down, and when they came back the same trail, then they had it booby-trapped. Incredible mind. And Americans got so fearful looking for the booby traps that they never saw the ambush that was waiting for them. You put your perimeters at night and you put 
concertina wire, razor sharp barbed wire and big tangles, and you surround your perimeter with it. You take a little thing like a claymore mine. A claymore mine is about that big. It's filled with ball bearings, about 300 of them. And you set it there, the face toward the enemy, and you lick them together, or link them together electronically. And when they start coming over the wire, you can set those off and put out about 10,000 steel BBs and just wipe out a whole company. Those little rascals in the middle of the night would sneak up through the barbed wire fences on their stomach, and they never rattle a can, they never make a sound, and they take the, our claymores and turn them around and facing us, and then they'd attack. And when somebody was set off the claymore, they'd blow back up in our faces. Incredible. Incredible. You had to develop a keen eye to see them before you set them off. And I want to say this, the devil will do the same thing in your Christian walk. He'll booby trap your trail in the darkness. He'll put all kinds of pitfalls, deathfalls, deadfalls. He'll put all kinds of punji stakes. He'll do everything he can. He'll turn everything you try to do to defend him right around back to you. Booby trap your trail of life. A Christian. A combat veteran Christian, not somebody in the military, but in God's military. Just like a Vietnam vet in combat, through the word of God, the light of God's word, he will develop an eye to see them snares and trip falls before you step on them. Now that's why the devil hates the Bible. That's why he desperately wants to take the word of God out of your life. Because once you lose the light of God, brother, you're on your own. And you certainly, as I'm standing here, will step in it and blow yourself up or get yourself impaled into things of this world. Every situation we have gotten ourselves in that has brought heartache to our life, every circumstance that led into divorce, every problem that led to losing our kids, every situation and problem we got in our world started because we stepped on a landmine that the devil placed for us when God gave you the light of God's word that you should have saw what was there. Because it's a light that shines in my heart that separates me from the world and shows me exclusively what's of God and what's of the world. But when you blur it together, when you bring the world in with Christianity, when you think that what the world does is okay for you to do, the light's no good. It only works when there's a contrast between light and darkness. And that old light guides my walk, your walk with God one step at a time as God orders it through life. The book of Proverbs is written for kings. Historically, the kings of Israel, but inspirationally for you and for me as a joint heir of Jesus Christ. Instructions for a king to rule and give God's people his truth through his grace. And someday we will reign with him as kings, join heirs. You know, one of the reasons that Israel missed the first coming of Christ is that very fact that they were looking for a king. Peter chapter 1 is probably one of the greatest chapters that explains why the Jew missed the first coming of Christ. God had put the references for the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ together. 
And where one, he comes as the king, the second coming, the first one, he comes as the prophet. And because Israel was out of fellowship with God and didn't have the right heart attitude, they couldn't get it laid out. Because of their unbelief, they couldn't separate, they couldn't discern the first coming passages from the second coming passages. So they completely missed the principle that God was trying to show them with the first coming and the second coming. You see, the first coming, he came as a servant, the book of Mark. The first coming, he came as a man who was tempted on all points like we, yet without sin, Luke. The first time he came as a divine son of God, John. But he also came as a king to the nation of Israel. That would be Matthew. But they couldn't see his kingship. They couldn't see his service attitude. They couldn't see what was going on because they could not get the fact that instead of coming as a king the first time, he came to fulfill the will of his father. And after he fulfilled the will of his father, that's when he was going to be crowned king. And that's a great model for you and for me because right now, yeah, I know you're going to be a king someday, Lord willing. And I know that we're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But right now, we're to do the will of the Father. Right now, we're to do the will of the Father. Right now, we're to be a servant. Right now, we're to be what Christ was when he came to man. Right now, we're to be them. Right now, we're to bear the iniquity of everybody else. Right now, we're to be the servant that we need to be. Right now, we are to be the ones that take the gospel, and we are to be that servant. And someday, at the second coming, we'll be a king. God died for every one of you. And yes, someday, Lord willing, when Christ comes back, we'll reign with him forever and ever and ever, and we'll be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But right now, we're to be a servant. Right now, we're to do the will of the Father, just like Jesus did. And just as the nation of Israel could not figure that out and missed everything that God had for them because of the hardness of their heart, most of God's people can't see it today either. And they missed the great concept. You're not a king yet. You're a shepherd. You're a servant. We're here right now to do the will of our Father. And when He comes back, we'll reign with Him as a king. God puts people in your life. God gives you your family. God gives you your, your, your kids. God gives you the kids that we have that our church. God gives me all of you. And I look at you as the most invaluable thing that, that, that in this whole world because within this little building right here and this group of people right here lies the ability to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it takes you and I understanding. You're not a king yet. Why are you living like one? Why do you go through life like everybody owes you something? Why do you go through life thinking that, you know, that you're this person or you're that person? Why don't you just realize and understand that, you know what? We're here to do the will of our Father. We're here to serve Him. We're here to be a shepherd. I thank God every day of my life for all of you who take people under your wing and help them come along with the Bible. That's what we're to do. So many churches are filled with people who won't even look across the aisle at somebody or talk to somebody. They got their own world, their heads in a cloud or somewhere, and they got, they're so full of themselves they can never come down to a level where they'll ever, ever be used of God to touch anybody's life. That's not true here. 
You are the greatest people on the planet. You are the greatest people in the world because you're here today almost with exclusively for one reason, because you love truth. You love truth, and that makes you a good person. Oh, I know you got your problems. I know you got your issues. I know you're some of you can do some stupid things sometimes. Sometimes sit down, we'll compare lists. I gave mine as bad as yours, but you love truth. You come week after week after week. You come Thursday night after Thursday night. You organize your whole world and your whole life and your family around the time that God's people meet. You know why? Because you love truth and you know how important truth is. We take our kids to camp. This, this is going to be a banner time. This is going to be a time like no other time we've ever had. And it's going to take every one of us praying on our knees for God to take our kids and bring them back. I asked you a question a long time ago when we had our banquet, and I asked you simply this. What would you pay to have a child that would do guaranteed to be everything and do everything exactly right the rest of their life as far as a human could do it? Well, we pay whatever amount of money. And you know what? You don't have to pay anything. You just got to get them to camp. We got to get on the same page, folks. I've got to teach you. You got to get inside of my mind and see what I'm going to do. I'm going to get inside of your mind the month before, and we're going to work this thing out when our kids come back. Now, we close camp on Thursday night. Norman, that's Bible study night, but I've already talked to Joe and Jacques, and that we're not going to have Bible study that night. I want everybody to come to that last camp meeting. I want you to see what God is going to do that week. I want you to come, and that'll be our closing night, and then we'll, we'll finish it up on, on Sunday morning. But that'll be our last night at camp, and I want those kids and their moms and dads and our families, and I want this church, because many of you will sponsor kids to go to camp. I've not said anything about it yet, but you will. You'll say, I can't, I don't have a kid, but here, send a kid to camp. You'll, do, you, you'll, be, you'll be responsible. You'll all be praying. And as a church, we all need to see the victory that God does. It will change the complexion of our kids. And when we come back from camp, now we've got a plan to keep it going. It isn't just, well, two weeks later you're back in school and now you've forgotten all about it. Uh-uh, not this year. Not this year. I'm not saying that won't happen in some cases, but then the majority of them, trust me, it will not happen. I'm going hunting that week. Now we're going to get some things done. Proverbs is the great book. It's for kings, for you and for me. And I love you so much. I thank you for the privilege of you allowing me to be your pastor and preach to you the truth. And I love you because you love truth. And I love you because you love the things of God. Well, when we're dismissed here. I'll give you about 10 minutes and then we'll get up here for restart. Use that 10 minutes wisely. All of the people that are for camp are going to be back there ready to go. Just find where Joe and Zach is. You get back there and get your kids shined up, get them lined up, get whatever they need so we can get that part of it out of the way. That is the easiest thing we got to do, but we're lagging in that right now.